Hi, it's good to see you this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Our text today is going to cover two verses, verses 24 and 25. Um, however, to read the, get the whole context, I want to read the whole text from verses uh, 19 through verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking your own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, in recent weeks, our study in Hebrews, we have slow down a bit, rather than taking the whole paragraph, verses 19 through 25 in one message, we have slowed down to take it in three. And we have used as our, as our kickoff points the three let us commands. There's a, a let us there in verse 22, let us draw near. There's a let us there in verse 23, let us hold fast. And there's a let us in verse 24, let us consider And we've taken each of these applications one per week. Let us draw near. That's the call to seek Jesus. It's the call to come near to Him and depend upon Him. And we have every reason to depend upon Jesus because, as it says, He has brought a new way for us into the veil. Verses 19 and 20. And He is a great High Priest. We have every reason to draw near to Jesus. Also, last week we considered hold fast. It's a call to cling to Jesus. It's a call to hold on to Him, to hold on to who He is and what He has done and what He will do for us. He is the King of kings. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God. He has died for our sins upon the cross. He has made redemption. He's purchased that for us. He's brought us into the heavenly places in Christ. And He will pray for us. He will... He will um, take our cause before the Father as our advocate. He is our high priest who will come and sympathize with us in all things. And this morning we come to our third exhortation here in verse 24. It's an exhortation to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Look there in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It's simply a call to all believers to do what we are called to do. We are called to encourage one another to love and good deeds. We are called to love and we are called to good deeds. Love is central to the Christian life. Jesus said it well. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. John 14, verse 15. And they say, well, what are His commandments? He spells that out a chapter later. In John 15, verse 12, He says, this is My commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. Christ loved us in that He gave Himself for us. He died for us upon the cross and we are then called to love others as well. That is His commandment. And I just say, love to Jesus will compel us to love one another. That's the Gospel. right? Everything that God is for us in Christ changes us, transforms us, so we love one another. 
Love is, is central to the law. It's the heart and soul of God's law. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, He gave two commandments, and both of them center around love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's vertical. And love your neighbors yourself. That's horizontal. And then He said, on these two commands, loving God and loving neighbors, depends the whole law. You show me a command in the law, or you show me a command in the prophets, and I'll show you how it relates to loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loving our neighbor as ourself. Everything comes back to love. Paul called love the perfect bond of unity, Colossians 3.14. James called love the royal law. The fulfillment of the law is love. So what Peter said, 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And John said it this way, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is a characteristic of Christians. Love is the fulfillment of a law. But love isn't merely a word. Love works itself out in actions. Genuine love will show and demonstrate itself in one's deeds. Again, a quote from the Apostle John. He says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word and tongue, but in deed and truth. He's not saying don't, don't say love, but he's saying is don't merely just say love, but do love as well. That is, love is a, is a call to action. And that's what we have in our text here this morning. It's a call to action. Let us consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. See, when God saves us from our sins, He saves us for a purpose. He saves us to produce fruit in us. He saves us for good deeds. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. God saves us. He prepares us for a purpose that we might be zealous for good deeds. Or as Ephesians 2.10 says, that we who are saved by grace, not by works, are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God creates us anew for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James said, faith without works is dead. God saves us to produce a people who will act upon their faith, and such is the will of God. Jesus one time told a parable to the religious leaders of the day. He said, what do you think? I had two, a man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, will you work today in the vineyard? And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it, and then he went. And the man came to his second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Then the question Jesus asked is, which of the two did the will of the Father? The chief priests and the elders of the people said the first. It's obvious, right? It's not just lip knowledge. Let us not love with word and tongue, but let us love in deed and in truth. And that is the will of God for all of us to trust and obey. That's the call of our text. It's a call to love and good deeds. However, here's where we spin a bit different in our text this morning. It's more than that. It's a call for you all to encourage you all to love and good deeds. Right? In other words, the, the emphasis of the text isn't so much on you showing love and good deeds. 
as much as it is upon you encouraging others to show love and good deeds. Now, that's not to say, I don't need to do love and good deeds. Someone else needs to. No, no, it's not that. The, the point is this. It's a call to encourage others to love and good deeds. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. See, that's the call of God upon our lives. It's not enough for us merely to be engaged in a life of love and good deeds. That's good, and that's God's call, and that's what my first point kind of has been here. But that's not enough. God's call upon our life is to bring others along in love and good deeds. So it's not just that we should do our, our love and good deeds, it's that we should, we should pull somebody else along and do our love and good deeds with us. That's the call here of verse 24. We are called to stimulate one another. Your translation might say stir up or it might say spur one another on. A good way to translate this word is the word provoke. We ought to provoke one another. Now, that word is kind of a negative word. Um, in fact, oftentimes the Greek language, when it's used, it is used in a negative sense of provoking or irritating, arousing to anger. Kids, you know what this is about? It's about when you're sitting in church, alright, and your brother's right next to you and you got your pen and you start just like, like poking him. And you're you're listening to the sermon, but you're you're poking him, or you're putting your your arm on his leg, or you're just kind of kind of just irritating him. So if you have a brother right now, you can kind of do that to him. That's that's okay. And you're irritating him, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to get a response from him, right? And sometimes you're not poking him so it hurts. I mean, it's not like you're you're taking your pocket knife out and jabbing it into his stomach. No, you're just kind of gently poking him and kind of bothering him. And eventually he gets angry at you and, and kind of slaps you and makes a scene in church and makes you drop your clipboard, right? And you succeeded. Your sin has caused your brother to sin. That's what provoking is all about. And I, I know you all know about it because I know about it. And I see my... Kids know about it, but I think they do it far less than I have done it before in the past. But in this context, the provoking is good. It's a provoking to love. It's a provoking to good deeds. This, this sort of provoking is like what Yvonne and I did this past summer. We decided to get in shape with some physical exercise to run. And um, there were days, we, we, we tried to run, we got, you all know, I put out the weekly word, from the couch to a 3K in nine weeks or something like that. And we just, you know, had this goal, we did, and it, we provoked each other to do that. There were times I didn't want to run, and so she starts poking me, come on, let's, let's get out of bed, you lazy bum, let's kind of go, let's go run. And there were times where I wanted to run and she didn't, and we provoked one another on. And together we benefited from each other far more than we could have done on our own. And as the truth is known, we need to do some more provoking. But that's our text this morning. We're called to be those who provoke others to good things, to love and good deeds particularly. Well, you say, how's that to be done? How are we supposed to do that? I said, I'm glad you asked because the text is begging us for application and you'll get some application today. In fact, most translations say this, let us consider how to, how to are application words. So let us think about how we ought to be doing this. One of the keys here is to know the, the order of the words in the Greek text. 
All your translations are faithfully translated. They're all good. But listen to a literal translation of this text. Let us consider one another towards the provoking of love and good deeds. Let us consider one another towards the provoking of love and good deeds. The translation is good. Let's consider how we should do that. But fundamentally, the key to stimulating one another to love and good deeds is to study one another. Is to consider one another. Is to really think about one another. Here's the practical. Here's how it's done. You want to you obey verse 24? You need to do this. Get to know others at church. Get to know people. And study them. And ask them questions. And, and, and find out their particular interests. And, and find out their strengths. And find out their weaknesses. Find out their gifts. And find out their needs. Find out where they flourish. And find out where they are floundering. And, and, and just think about them. And so as names come to mind, as people come to mind, just think about people and know them. And then, do what you can within their own sphere of who they are to provoke them to love and good deeds. And that might mean something different for one person than it means for another person. It might mean this. When you see someone doing something commendable, honor them by speaking to them about how you notice God working them in them in a specific way. It may just be the thing that that helps them when they're weary and well-doing. And your encouragement might be the very thing to press them on and to help them and to strengthen them. Or when you notice a lack of love, maybe gently urging on to love in a greater way. If we're to stimulate to love and good deeds, if someone's not loving, we need to stimulate them to love. We need to correct them gently. And if you do it right, there are many wrong ways to do that. If you do it right, you can encourage them to love. Or when you hear of an opportunity of something that they can perhaps do for others, tell them of the opportunity and, and, and encourage them to help. Perhaps their gifts fit someone's need. And you might see the need and might see the gifts where the one with the gifts doesn't see the need and you can kind of put the two together. It may be they didn't even know about the need before. And if you put them together, it may help. Like, I just think about some things. I mean, these are just... Like Karen Looney. She's not here today for some reason. I'm not sure. She's sick today. I didn't know that. Because um, I know she wouldn't miss church for her life. She'd come to love Rock Valley Bible Church. She has a love for animals. If you have an animal problem of any type, you need an animal to be house-sit, or you got some stray, or you want some... She'll she be like all over you. But if, if you're coming to me with animal problems, <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. Okay? I'm growing. We've got this bird. I'm growing in my love for Kevin, Hannah, but I'm not sure we're going to get Rover anytime soon. Though she's, conv- she's trying to change me. But... I, don't come to me with your inner problems. Go, go to her. Or finances. You have some kind of financial question. Go to Phil Gusky. I mean, that's what he does. Or Ray Hook. 
loves financially counseling people. Does a great job of that. If you have some kind of question in that area, go to them. If you have anything wrong with your house, talk to Dirk. He just loves that stuff. If stuff wrong with your house, don't come talking to me. I might might help a little bit. I'm not gonna not gonna do it. Know people's gifts and know how they can serve. I mean, here might be an example. Let me say this. It might be a simple, verse 24, and this is where it's so great. To fulfill verse 24 might be as simple as asking someone for help in your life. For instance, recently I had a problem with my roof. Some shingles flew off of my roof. And I, I saw how high up that was, and I said, I'm not going up there, but I need some help. And uh, so I talked to Brian Mulder, Jody's husband, who's working today. And uh, he's done a lot of roofing in the past. And so he came over one day, and I had kind of some extra shingles from when we'd done a shingling project, and he went way up there to the top of the roof, and he replaced some shingles for me and um, told me the stats of my roof. I need some new roof job at some point here coming. But uh, he fixed it for me. Think about what happened now, okay? I had a need. And I knew somebody in the body who had gifts. And so I said, well, Brian can help me. And so I asked Brian. And he engaged in a good deed to help his friend in his distress. And I thereby stimulated Brian to love and good deeds by Brian helping me. (laughs) How much better can that be? This text is a call for you to help yourselves by calling others to engage their gifts in serving you and helping you. As a result, it's gain. I gain, and he gains by engaging in love and good deeds. How much better can that be? That's how simple it is. And yet there are times where people refuse to do this. Because we, in America, we want to do it on our own. It's like you are missing out on a, allowing an opportunity to engage somebody else in love and good deeds. You ever thought about that? Now, if you ask too much, certainly you can become a burden, right? And we're not looking at welfare here. But this is appropriate. You can do that. This week, I had a problem with my air conditioner. Who am I calling? I didn't call Dirk. No. Because Garth, is he's an air conditioning guy. And so I called him and said, hey, what's up? And he showed his love to me, helping me out. He engaged in good deeds. He helped me. It's a win-win situation. Right, Garth? All the way around. That's just two examples of many. I guess maybe I'm not, I'm not so bashful at this. I just know where I can, can help, but also can help you to stimulate you to love and good deeds. And I have noticed that if you're in a position of weakness in the church, a genuine position of weakness, there are plenty of people to help. You just need to ask. They need to know the opportunity. And if the opportunity is known, think about this, you get the opportunity to stir them on to love and good deeds. That's one way. So when opportunities come, whether it's with you or with someone else, I know I've had opportunities before. I kind of, I'm a pastor, and so I'm kind of Grand Central Station sometimes. Not always. I like it when I'm not, but sometimes I is. And in terms of, okay, here's a need here. Here's something. How can I, how can I match people up? And sometimes people say, hey, I got a roof problem. I want you to talk with Brian Mulder. You got this kind of problem. You know, Carl, you're good at stuff. I mean, lots of people have different, different things and different gifts. You can help with things. But it's not always just telling others what to do. Okay? In our family, my, my great-grandfather's name was Antone. And uh, in our family, Antone is the, 
the, the joke for when someone in our family is playing supervisor. Okay, he was a strawberry farmer. He was a dairy farmer up in Wisconsin. Anton was. And, and what my dad tells me, I never knew him. He died before I, I was born. But he said that Anton was the great supervisor. He'd tell people when to pick the strawberries and then he'd, he'd maybe take them to town maybe and sell them or he'd tell you go to town. He was a great supervisor. Okay, so when someone in our family supervising, we just say, oh, you're being like Antone. Okay, that's a bad kind of... T- good, good thing no one here is named Antone is what I'm thankful for. But here's what you can do to present, prevent being Antone. You can call others to serve alongside. You see an opportunity, you're going to go serve Rather than just going and serving yourself, how about you bring others along? It eases your burden and it helps them share and engage in love and good deeds. It might be as easy as that. In fact, that is the most effective way of provoking people is to model it and then to bring others along in that. Fathers, I just say especially for you in the home. If anybody you want to provoke to love and good deeds, it is your children, Right? And so the best way, the most effective way for you to do this in your family is to model love and good deeds of the home and then encourage your children to follow your example. That's what you're called to do, men. I know my dad has told me this many times. He says, Steve, I will never ask you to do anything that I haven't done first or I'm not willing to do myself. And men, that ought to be your idea as well. Nothing that... I've not done already, whether it's clean toilets, whether it's clean room, whether it's you know, catch vomit from children, whether it's whatever, have done it or willing to do it. Now, there's some times, man, where you, you know, as your kids grow up, you delegate a lot more stuff. At our, at our house, boy, things are a lot more busy with five kids and they're growing up and they're running around and, and we delegate a lot of work around the house, but we've done it. We can't do it all. So we encourage the kids and thereby think about what we're doing. We are stimulating our kids to love and good deeds by asking them to do their role around our house because we model it and we're asking them along the way. And the better model and example you are, the better your children will come and be and engage in that as well. So fathers, don't just order your children around. Don't say, do this, do this, do that, when you sit on your reclining chair. When you come home, Yes, you come home from a busy day of work and relax, but oftentimes you come home and work. Be a servant. Your kids are in bed. That's the time to relax. Show them what a life of love and good deeds look like and then use your God-given authority to stimulate them in that way. Now, I just want to say also just practically the extent of these things is broad. Many forms, many different circumstances. It might be helping someone with house repair. It might be giving to someone in financial need. You might see a need, so give them. Help them. It may be giving some of your stuff to someone in need. It might be visiting a hurting member of the congregation. It might be making a call. It might be doing some babysitting for somebody. It might be reminding someone of the Gospel who's down and out for some reason. It might mean giving a meal or giving a ride or giving a book or giving a CD. It, it might mean taking an outing someplace. It might mean praying with one another. It might just mean speaking encouraging words. I tell you, there's nothing more detrimental to love and good deeds than a complaining spirit. If you're in the presence of someone who just has a complaining spirit, they are not helping you to love and good deeds. They're not. 
And if you have a complaining spirit, you're not helping anybody to love and good deeds. You're just helping them to have a sour disposition that just sits back and just complains all the time about whatever. That's the call of the text. Now, notice this call of verse here 24. It's not a program that the leadership of the church instigates and just says, okay, now these are all the ways that we're going to serve and you can do this. It's, it's not that at all. Rather, it's a grassroots program which those in the church are involved in other people's lives to such an extent they know people well enough that they see needs and know how to meet those needs or can gather the resources to meet that needs and then pour it out in love and good deeds to one another. I just say that's, that's what this text is. Now, it, it takes time and effort, doesn't it? It's not just show up someplace and do some job. It's study someone and figure out how you can help them in real life. And yet, that is the call of biblical Christianity. See, biblical Christianity isn't just attending some church service and think that you've, you've fulfilled your God-ordained call in your life because you've sung a few songs and listened to some prayers and heard a good sermon, which is doctrinally correct. We're called to live in community where we love one another and serve one another and help one another. And if you're off doing your own thing, serving Jesus alone, you're missing a crucial component in your life of faith, the body. Now, this isn't the first time such things have been mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Turn back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we see the same idea. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but... Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The danger here is a hard heart, refusing to listen to the Lord, refusing to follow in His ways. And the antidote to these things is encouraging one another. It's you encouraging me. It's me encouraging you. It's you encouraging you. And it's you encouraging you. Or as others have said, sanctification is a community project. I need you to help me grow in my love for Christ. And you need others to help you grow in your love for Jesus. You need the body, and the body needs you. Now, the book of Hebrews is filled with warnings. There's a warning in chapter 2 of don't drift. The warning in chapter 3 is don't harden your hearts. The warning in chapter 6 is don't be stagnant, but press on. The warning in chapter 10 comes don't continue in your sin. The warning in chapter 12 is this, don't come short of the grace of God. Right? They're, they're all talking about pressing on, right? as we've seen in Hebrews. right? Jesus is better, so press on. So press on in these things. Don't drift. And the way to heed these warnings, and the way not to drift, and the way not to harden your hearts, and the way not to continue sin, is to engage your life in close, close community with other people so they might continue to remind you how great Jesus is and what great things He's done for us on the cross and would spur you on and provoke you to love and good deeds. That's the thrust of Hebrews. Is the need of the community to protect from the warnings and the dangers. Well, let, let me help. Maybe we can learn from Bison. We went to uh, Yellowstone this summer and uh, for some reason, I'm not sure... But our three-year-old David has just gotten into bison. He just loves bison. Bison this and bison that. And so, Yvonne recently bought a bison, a couple of bison books. But here's one I put before you. Um, just kind of talking about bison. And he loves to read through these things and look at all, all the pictures. And, 
And uh, this book particularly <clears throat> kind of takes a fictional account <clears throat> of this um, bison named Mandan, this cow bison, uh, on, the, on the plains really, I think, before humans really came or at the, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure you call it, the colonial period or something like that. And one of the things, it, it, it talks about the different weather, the things they eat, the ecosystem, where they roamed, and um, the herd, and things are like that, how they survived. But I want to talk and share with you a little bit about their enemy, the wolf. Okay? The wolf. Although the bison were strong and fearsome, they too were hounded by predators. Only a few species could hope to capture these huge beasts. The bison were threatened by the wolf, the coyote, the mountain lion, and the grizzly bear. Bison herds had a special method of defending themselves. One day, a pack of wolves appeared before Mandan's herd, and the cows instantly banded together and formed a solid wall of alert animals. All at once, the wolves charged the herd, hoping the frightened animals would start a stampede. Because if the cows scrambled and ran, the wolves would be able to take several calves and possibly a cow or two as well. But Mandan and the rest of the cows remained in position, however, and the wolves gave up and moved on. This time, Mandan and her calf were safe. What can we learn from bison? The safety of the individual is the strength of the whole. And so likewise in the church of Jesus Christ, the the safety and the strength of the individual is the strength of the whole. Because sanctification is a community project. And we need to be about provoking others to love and good deeds. See, we're all in danger. We are all in danger of drifting from the Lord. We're all in danger of hardening our hearts. We're all in danger of coming short of the grace of God. And we need help of others to help us focus on the Lord. <clears throat> we need others to... <clears throat> stimulate us to love and good deeds. And so now I come and just simply ask you how you're doing. How are you doing in these things? Are you engaged in thinking about other people of the church, how you might stimulate them to love and good deeds? Are you actively engaged in the process of provoking other people to love and good deeds? And for those of you who are, and by the way, I'm preaching the choir today mostly at Rock Valley Bible Church. I hear stuff happening all the time apart from me where people are just with each other, serving one another, helping one another, and in that I, I just thank the Lord for that. But I would encourage you, exhort you, as Paul did the Thessalonians, as he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me, just, let me just read it for you. I don't even have it in my notes here. 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. And I say, Rock Valley Bible Church, you do know love and you do practice it, but we urge you and I urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I just encourage you on, excel still more in how to do this. And for those of you who aren't, maybe on the fringe a little bit more, I call you to realize your danger. Realize your danger. Because there's a danger. For the original readers, the danger was, was big. In fact, that's the whole reason why Hebrews is written. Because there's a big danger in these people's lives. 
The big temptation for them was to go back to their old familiar Judaism. To, to forsake Jesus and, and bring some sacrifices back to the priests and get in the temples and get in the festivals and getting into the religious ceremonies. And they were being pulled away by family and friends. They're saying, come back. Your Jesus can't save you. If He's the Messiah, He's a dead Messiah. He can't save you. You need your family. You need your priests. You need your sacrifices. You need the Torah. Come back. And these people were being called back like wolves attacking bison. Our problems aren't to go back to Judaism. We've not come from Judaism. But we are easily pulled away by the world, I think, because we've come from the world. See, there's a pull of the world in our lives. There's a pull of the flesh. There's a pull of the devil. As John said in 1 John 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And I say in America, for us, the temptation isn't Judaism, but we have another temptation which is equally as strong. Our temptation is materialism. We live in the richest country of the world. Our easy tendency is to place our hope in the material world. It's interesting. We, uh, we had a dinner last night with uh, a foreign exchange student from uh, Bulgaria. We've known him for maybe eight years or so. And uh, he just got married, and so it's kind of we've had an opportunity to reach out to him and help him and serve him. We share the gospel with him, and um, but it was very interesting that um, he has tried very, very hard to be here in America. Had massive visa problems trying to get in, and and finally now he's married uh, an American citizen who was from Bulgaria, and now he's got his green card. Is that I think what he's got? He's got his citizenship here in a couple years. But he worked so hard to be here because it's so much nicer here than it is in Bulgaria. And as difficult as things are with the Great Recession or whatever, as Phil likes to remind me, we Americans still have the highest standard of living of anybody. But our, that is our danger. Our danger is materialism. Our danger is to trust in the world. And so what is the antidote to that? What do we need? We need to hear others talk of things to come. We need to hear of others talk of faith. We, we need to get our attention off of the things here and now. We need to set our minds on things above and we need to speak with others so as to put our minds on things above so we might live as heavenly minded and not as earthly minded. So we need to have spiritual conversations. We need to have Bible-saturated conversations. We need to speak much of the glories of God. We need to speak much of the glories of Jesus. Continue to speak the Gospel to one another. Speak about God. That's what we need. If you want to encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, pull us away from, from, the, from the, the things of this world. Pull us away from the materialism and point us to Christ where our hope is. That's a way that you can stimulate to love and good deeds as you put people's hopes in heaven. And that will be encouragement to others to press on, which is our, our great need. Now, unfortunately, there are many professing Christians in our culture who are off on their own thinking themselves to be sufficient. I can just do my own thing. I mean, I'm serving Jesus over here. Don't need that church thing. Talk to many people like that. But it's not the case. They're in great danger. I mean, 
Again, we can learn from the bison. What happens when you're off and alone? Now, most of the time, adult bull bison were now more of a match for even a large pack of wolves. The wolves would test the bull for signs of weakness, and if none were found, they'd move on. An animal that stood its ground was much less likely to be attacked by the one that ran. But a bison that ran and got away from the flock, the herd, allowed the wolves to get close enough to take bites out of its flanks and belly, and the wolves would continue to disturb the wounded bison until it could not rest and it could not heal. And after about a day or two, the exhausted bison would finally collapse, and the rich bounty of meat a bison would provide was well worth the wait for the wolf. We can learn from bison. You get off on your own, there is great danger. probably heard the story, but I'll tell it again. I've not told this story in the pulpit before, so I'll, I'll tell it. It was a pastor who visited a man in church who had not attended church for some time. could be fictitious. I'm not sure. But anyway, the man told the pastor, I'm still a Christian. I just don't think I need to go to church anymore. The pastor didn't say a word. Rather, he picked up his tongs, took a coal from the fire, and pulled it away from the blazing fire and just kind of set it here. Kind of sat back and relaxed to watch things for a moment. And that lone coal eventually fizzled out. Took the tongs back in, put it in the coal, put it back in the fire, and soon it was burning again. Without saying a word, the pastor got his point across and the man was in church the next Sunday. It's the importance of community. I know that story is old, but it needs the point needs to be made again. You need to be with saints to encourage you to love and good deeds. That's the point of verse 25. Look at chapter 10, verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. If sanctification is a community project, it's important for you to be engaged in community. It's important for you to assemble with other believers so that you might encourage them. You can't encourage somebody if you don't have any contact with them. Let me say this also. Do you realize that one of the purposes in assembling together is for mutual encouragement of the saints? People come here to encourage you. And you come here to encourage others. That's the purpose. And when you don't come, you're a discouragement already and you lose the opportunity to be an encouragement. And on one level, that takes place in our corporate assembly. But in another sense, maybe in a greater way, it takes place in smaller groups. In fact, that's one of the main purposes of small groups starting up again this fall, is to get people closer together in their lives. They might share in one another's lives. They might know how to serve one another, might encourage one another. We're going to have four groups. Darren's leading one. Phil's going to lead one. I'm going to lead two of them. Exact dates and times, locations will be coming, but there'll be Friday evenings and Sunday evenings. And I encourage you, if at all possible, make these meetings a priority in your life. It's an application of verse 25. Don't forsake our assembling. And if you think you just go on Sunday mornings and kind of come in and slip out and fulfill Matthew... or Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, you're mistaken. You've you got to know people. You've got to be involved. You've got to be engaged in their lives. And this is what small group time allows us to do. Give and take, enabling mutual encouragement with one another. And so, I encourage you 
to use these small groups as an opportunity for you to see how it is I might encourage others on to love and good deeds. And we as a church might continue to do that well. Now sadly, in the days of the Hebrews, when Hebrews were written, there were people who were not in the habit of assembling together anymore. And you see it there in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. There were some who were not assembling. And if the problem was in the early church, of people not assembling, (laughs) the problem is far greater in America. There are many in this land for whom church attendance is a convenience, not a conviction. And with the convenience, excuses can come so easily. But how different this is than the others in Scriptures who love the assembly of the saints. And see, when there's a love for the assembly, nothing will keep you away. I mean, I'm encouraged by Betty. There's love for the assembly, Betty. And you're up every Saturday night working at Walmart till 7 in the morning. There's a love there. And and that's why Karen alluded. That's why I'm surprised she wasn't here today because there's a love there. And with a great love, efforts are going to be made to be here. Little excuses will go by the wayside. Because the attitude is like Psalm 122, verse 1. David said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. We're glad to go to a good place. We're glad to go to the happy place. We want to be there. Or Psalm 84, verse 10. A day in your courts are better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He speaks of a desire to assemble. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews repented of their sins and came into the church. And what happened? You all know that. Acts chapter 2. They just assembled. They were with one another. They couldn't, you couldn't pull them apart. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed together were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were together in the temple corporately. They were with smaller groups in house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. For these people, church was no convenience. For these people, church was... A conviction. You didn't have to push them to be in the assembly of believers. It was a natural desire of their heart to be with God's people. It was a natural desire of their heart to encourage others and to be encouraged by others. And think about Acts 2.45, which I read there for you. They were selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as anyone might have need. I mean, someone had a need and I had a possession and so I sold it to meet that need. Is that a love? Is that good deeds? And as, as they saw that, other people were doing that. Meeting needs all around. But by the days of the Epistle of Hebrews, probably about 30 years later, some were losing heart. And I'm not sure if some of these were the same that came at Pentecost. I'm not sure. But, but some were... They just kind of... Well, I don't know. I don't need to... I don't need to go to church today. It's been a busy week. I, I don't need to go to church. Some other excuses we come up with. I've heard people's excuses. They're 
small sometimes? I say, well, would those in the early church do that? But people are losing heart. They're losing perspective. They neglected the assembly together. Well, what about you? Do you prioritize the assembly of the saints? Or do you say, well, when it's convenient, I'll go? So you think about attending a small group, or you're thinking, man, it's just one more thing to my schedule. Well, maybe you're too busy with other things. This should be a priority. I'd encourage you to really think about your time. Getting a small group might cost you something. It might cost you time and effort. But, but I guarantee you, the cost to assemble one more time is not nearly the cost of what, it, what other believers have sacrificed throughout all time. I want to tell you of a, a man in China during the days of Hudson Taylor. Um, he was 1830s, 1850s, something like that. And uh, he was a missionary to China. And uh, he's talking about uh, the church in China in those days when the gospel is just starting to come to China. There was a man whose name was Nen Kui. He said this, he found that it cost him a full third of his weekly wages to attend the meetings on Sunday mornings. A third of his weekly wages. So he said, well, how, how can that be? Well, here it is. He was a skilled workman and his master was quite willing that he should get through all there was to be done in six days, provided he went without pay on the seventh. He was working seven days, pay every day. Now his pay included, we got paid, he also paid for his food. The master did. If it gave him, this is the master, if it gave him satisfaction to waste four days in every month, he was at liberty to do so. Only, he must of course provide his food on those occasions and draw wages only for the time in which his work was done. It was a clever arrangement as far as the master was concerned, but one that told heavily upon the poor basket maker. Two pence a day and his food had been little enough before, but now only 12 pence a week instead of 14. And he had to spend two or three on provisions for Sunday, which meant a total lessening of his hard-earned income by a third. Is that sacrifice to gather? But he was willing, quite willing for this, if only he could have the Lord's Day for worship. And there could no doubt be that he was richly repaid in the strength and blessing it brought him all through the week. And sacrifice in assembling? Nen Kui, some poor basket weaver. It cost him something. And whatever you think about gathering, it will cost you far less. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. When the heart is willing, the feet will be swift. And I've often found that when the heart is not willing, the feet are not swift. And often when the feet are not swift, it's an indication that the heart is not willing. Now, there are times, certainly we can't be here, right? If you're in the hospital, it's just, you're excused, okay? <laughs> if you're out of town, you're excused, right? Yeah. But God knows your heart, and I'm not chasing you down. But I would say that there are those who sometimes get in the habit of not coming, and it's not a good thing. Because you're not being encouraged and you're forsaking your duty to encourage other people. It has to do with perspective. If you come to church, there's a point of maturity, of Christian maturity. When you come to church, not just to get what you can get, but when you come to give what you can give, your attendance increases. Well, the writer of Hebrews gives one last perspective, the return of Christ. He says we should gather together all the more as you see the day drawing near. This has reference to the final day, 
the day when Christ returns. And let me tell you, that day is drawing near. It's been drawing near for a long time, but it is drawing near to the extent that today, it's a day closer than it was yesterday. You realize that? And this week, it's a week closer than it was last week. And this month, it's a month closer than it was last month. In 2010, it's a year closer than it was in 2009. That day is drawing near. And I think what this is talking about is just the, the judgment is coming. We need to render to God. We need all the encouragement for that day as it comes, as it draws near. And you need to be ready for that day. And how are you ready for that day? Ready for that day not by being off on your own, but by being in the assembly of God's people. Being ready today. Jesus asked the question, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave who his master put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave who his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and assign him the place with the hypocrites. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I fear that that's what happens with people who drift and who get away and may very well be they're not ready for the Lord's return. Such is the importance of stimulating to love and good deeds. Well, if there's anything to help us, verse 26, which we'll look at next week, should help us. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. And the question, what does it mean to sin willfully? Well, it could be a lot of things, but one thing it could be is staying away from the assembly. I just say, where's your heart? Do you have a heart and passion? You know, maybe things are too easy for us in the United States. Maybe they're too easy. I just ask you, if things got really hard, would you be here? There's the big test, I guess. If it cost you your life, perhaps, to be here, would you be here? Um, been reading this in my family recently by David Platt. He's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, I think. A book called Radical. It's a dangerous book. I encourage you to, I dare you to read it. He says this, Imagine all the blinds closed and the windows of a dimly lit, lit room. Twenty leaders from different churches in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust in the villages from which they had set out on bikes that morning. They gathered in secret. They had intentionally come to this place at different times throughout the morning so as not to draw attention to the meeting that was occurring. They lived in a country in Asia where it is illegal for them to gather like this. If caught, they could lose their land, their jobs, their family, or their lives. They know it's a stake, but they desire to gather. His first day with these believers, he said, they simply asked me to lead a Bible study. Please meet with us tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I put some thoughts together for a short Bible study and went to the designated location where about 20 house leaders were waiting. I don't remember when we started, but I do remember that eight hours later we are still going strong. We'd study one passage and then they'd ask about another and this would lead to another topic and then to another. And by the end of the day, our conversations reigned from dreams and visions to tongues in the Trinity. It was late in the evening and they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to get back to their homes. 
So they asked the two main church leaders and me, can we meet again tomorrow? I said, I'd be glad to. Shall we meet at the same time? They responded, no, we want to start early in the morning. So I said, okay, how long would you like to study? And they replied, all day. Thus began a process which over the next ten days, for eight to twelve hours a day, we'd gather to study God's Word. Here's understatement of year. They were hungry. On the second day, I introduced these relatively new believers to the story of Nehemiah. I gave them the background, the history of the Bible book, and showed them in Nehemiah 8 the importance of God's Word. Afterwards, we took a short break, and I saw the leaders talking intently about something in small groups. A few minutes later, one of them approached me. We've never heard any of this truth before. We want to learn more, she said, and then she dropped the bomb. Would you be willing to teach us about all the books of the Old Testament while you're here? (laughs) I laughed, smiling, said, all the Old Testament? That would take a long time. But this time the others were joining in the conversation. They said, we will do whatever it takes. Most of us are farmers and we work all day, but we will leave our fields unattended for the next couple of weeks if we can learn the Old Testament. So that's what we did. The next day, I walked them through an overview of Old Testament history. And then we started in Genesis. And in the days that followed, we plowed right through the highlights and the main themes of every Old Testament book. Imagine teaching the Song of Songs to a group of Asian believers, many who've never read the book before, and just praying they don't ask questions. On the next to last day, we finished Malachi. I had 12 more hours to teach. I had no clue what to say. Once you've taught Habakkuk, what else is there to say? So the next day, I started teaching on a random subject, but within an hour, I was interrupted by one of the leaders. We have a problem, he said. Word had said something wrong. I responded, now what's the matter? He replied, you have taught us the Old Testament, but you've not taught us the New Testament. I smiled, but he was serious. We would like to learn the New Testament today, he said. As other leaders across the room nodded, I had no choice. And so for the next 11 hours, I walked briskly from Matthew to Revelation. Just imagine going to a worship gathering in one of those house churches. Not an all-day training session in the Word. Just a normal three-hour worship service late in the evening. The Asian believer who's taking you gives you these instructions. Put on dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. We will put you in the back of our car and drive you into the village. Please keep your hood on and your face down. When you arrive in the village under the cover of night, another Asian believer meets you at the door of the car. Follow me, he says. With your hood over your head, you crawl out of the car, keeping your face toward the ground. You begin to walk with your eyes fixed on the feet of the man in front of you as he leads you down a long, winding path with a small flashlight. You hear more and more footsteps around you as you progress down the trail, and then finally you round the corner and walk into a small room. Despite its size, 60 believers have crammed into it. They are all ages. From precious little girls to 70-year-old men, they are sitting either on the floor or on small stools, lying shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles in their laps. The roof is low and one light bulb dangles from the middle of the ceiling as the sole source of illumination. No sound system, no band, no guitar, no entertainment, no cushioned chairs, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing but the people of God and the Word of God And strangely, he says, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like this one. His Word is enough for millions of other believers who huddle in African jungles, South American rainforests, and Middle Eastern cities. And then comes the piercing question, but is His Word enough for us? Is it enough for us? enough for us. 
It is for them. It's all that we have. You know, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we may not be the, the most flashy church. We may not be having all the, the things. But we have the Word of God. And we have another. Is that enough? Will you press on to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing nigh? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the Word of God would be enough for us. I pray that you would help us and guide us in these days. I pray that you'd renew within us a zeal for you and for Jesus and for the Gospel. That that would be sufficient for all of our life. That you would keep us away from the materialism which so dominates our society. That we would not drift into that. That we would not have hard hearts, but we would have soft hearts towards you that would love to gather, that would love to hear Your Word, that would love to encourage others, and that You might continue Your work at building the church for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.